Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This to me is like the really fascinating material. We don't know what the answer is, but we're looking for patterns. I think we're looking at kind of a type of cosmic alchemy. The story is Possibilities here are pretty minor. We can't just believe that it was the work of these own troubled individuals. A secret passageway with a secret church that is made to Welcome back to Good Spirit Normal, guys. It's your friendly host, Adam. And this guy. The Studio B operator. <laughs> yes, tonight you are the Studio B no, operator. I'm, I'm the co-producer. <laughs> because normal because Rob is, is out hunting Dogman in the woods of Michigan. He's probably really laying on the beach right now is what we'll, he's probably really doing. We'll try to fit in a Dogman report. 
yeah hopefully in this yeah. episode well if he ever comes back i mean if he disappears mysteriously we we know what happened and uh it's interesting that we're talking about dogman just now because we have someone that is an expert on wolves and canines in mythology among other things uh and we have rich blackett all the way from the uk he has agreed to stay up into the wee hours of the morning for him and it's uh kind of like early evening for us but uh, rich welcome to conspiracy normal thanks for having me adam hey thanks for coming on you know i heard you on melissa martell's and john Ch- chadwick's podcast the drawing out the spirits back in well i was making a drive across the country and i was having them on so i was listening to their podcast and i heard you the subject that you were talking about and it just kind of immediately intrigued me this whole idea i'm always intrigued by because because animals and symbol well in symbolism and the paranormal supernatural always come up there's a guy out there that in some ways I think is kind of mining the same territory that you are with wolves, but uh, his name is Mike Cleland. He's doing it with owls. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but I think this, yeah, the name's familiar. Yeah, yeah. He talks a lot about how owls. You know, there, there's the idea that they're a screen memory for alien abduction, but he also talks about real owl owl encounters that the same people that are having those experiences will have with real owls. And he talks a lot about the symbolism involved and the mythology surrounding them. So your work is a little little similar to that, but you are talking more about wolves and wolf um, symbolism in in kind of ancient culture and I guess into today as well. So I kind of wanted to get your where where this all started for you. How did you start looking into all this? And all this symbolism and all this thing having to do with wolves. Well, I, I'm a bookhound. You know, I, I really love love to read, collecting books and that sort of thing. And the more you read, the more you re- read other books, essentially. And um, I was scrolling through the sort of what you might call you know the outer reaches of Amazon for more obscure books. And if and I began to sort of look at bibliographies of other books, and this led me on and on and on. And I'd read this very in-depth in and quite expensive book um, called The One-Eyed God uh, by an author called Chris Kershaw. Um, I don't entirely buy their theory, but it was a really interesting book talking about wolf mythology going right the way back to a very ancient period. I thought, oh, that's, that's very interesting. And at the same time, I was doing, um, you know, in my day job, I was training to be a trainer, sort of delivering tr- sort of uh, training to colleagues and that sort of thing. And at the end of this course, we were allowed to do a presentation on anything we liked. So on a whim, I decided to do a little 15-minute talk on the origin of werewolf mythology, which blew everybody you know, sort of away in the room because everyone else was doing you know, my dog or my favorite football team or my favorite film. Mm-hmm. And I said, right, I'm going to take you back to 10,000 years of history and sort of played some spooky music to uh, wide eyes uh, from my colleagues. But, it, you know, it, it went down quite well. Uh, but about a month later, I had an opportunity to give a talk at a festival where somebody else was not able to, to do their talk, coincidentally on another animal. It was on ravens. 
Okay. Um, a, guy, a guy called Pete Jennings who's written all manner of fascinating books. And he wasn't able to do it. And I said to the organizer, and I said, I can do this talk on werewolves. You know, I, obviously she was a little bit um, suspicious. Well, not suspicious, but are you sure you can fill 30 minutes? I said, I can probably do something, yeah. And I gave this talk on werewolves and uh, to quite a good reception. So I began to sort of, oh, this, this is quite fun. So I bought more books on wolves and werewolves and wolf cults and that sort of thing thinking there can't be that much to discover really because it's a mm. it's a limited field you know everybody's seen the you know the twilight movies and you know the, those sorts of pop culture things there's not going to be a lot there sure. but the more i dug the more i found and it kind of became this this little thin thread that sort of stretches deeper and deeper into culture the more you look what was the ancient people's fascination with wolves why was there, I mean, well, I guess why there still is really this kind of fascination with these animals. Well, we don't know exactly where this happened, but we know yeah. that it did go on. Uh, one of the biggest archaeological things that's been found is a place, uh, it's in the Ukraine, called the long name called Krasnosya Moscow. And if you've ever seen a, a blog post or anything referencing the wolf rights of winter or ancient wolf rights, it goes back to this particular study that was done at this uh, site in the Ukraine, uh, where they found this very, very ancient, presumably ritual place with thousands and thousands of dogs and wolves, because they were almost synonymous at that sort of, still at that sort of stage. Sure, sac sacrificed ritually. Um, at a particular place. And it wasn't all done at once. It was done over hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, this is a pre-literate culture, so we don't really, really know. Um, but certainly it was of huge, huge importance to the people there. And certain anthropologists have delved a bit further into the, the remnants of mythology that are left from that era. And we're talking about seven, ten thousand 10,000 years ago, so definitely... Certainly, in terms of Europe, uh, pre-literate, pre and there's a there's an analysis that says that the concept of the wolf was linked to adolescence, so people being hunters and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, the theory goes: this is obviously a hypothesis that um, instead of an army, you would have sort of Adolescent males would live outside the village like wolves, sort of wild, kind of do whatever you like, go and raid other villages, live half naked, you know, be, be warriors, be, be crazy. But these would be landless people. They would be unmarried, perhaps without a skill or a trade, outside the village, outside. And the concept of the outsider and this connection with adolescence, although 10,000 years ago, it actually, you see that again and again and again connect, connected to wolves. Now, whether that's just coincidence or whether it's some kind of pattern of culture that's been gradually inherited is, well, I guess you just have to leave that up to speculation. But um, certainly the idea of them living half naked, sort of outside, you know, outside the village or outside the, the safe area, you might call it, um, hunting. And um, now, these people will be classed as somewhat heroic, 
but the concept of a hero then is very different to what we would think of as now. So heroic means if you go and raid and murder lots of the next tribe, that's heroic. So it's it's not quite what <laughs> yeah. it's not quite what we would. Uh, one particular myth that that's been traced back uh, by sort of mythology analysis is the 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 concept of the cattle raid. It doesn't sound a big deal, cattle rustling. So what? But actually, in terms of those cultures, cattle raiding uh, wipes them out in a sense because you've taken all their food, all their means of of, of growing crops. Essentially, you've, you've taken everything. So it's a it's a big big deal in that in that culture. Um, and this is the the culture they're coming from is what's called the Proto-Indo-Europeans or the Indo-Europeans. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, they were a hugely successful cultural group. Um, for one or two very strange reasons, one of which was that. Um, I mean, they're, they're, think of them like a step culture, they are, as in they are, as in S-T-E, double P-E, step culture. A bit like um, the Mongols or that sort of thing, so they're, they're, they're traveling, you know, they're, they're mobile. But one of the things that, that they developed was an enzyme in their sort of biology, by accident, whatever, was that they were able to eat dairy products past the age of childhood. Now, it doesn't sound like a big deal now, but it means that your food production is more efficient, so you can raise more people on fewer cattle, so you can have bigger families, so you become, you know, the, the knock-on effect of that is huge. It doesn't sound like much, but it means that these they became immensely successful and they sort of, they migrated from their sort of homeland, you might call it, to uh, sort of the Middle East, to the north, to the uh, sort of you know the Uralic tribes, and then into Greece and Ro- you know the the Roman peninsula, you know the 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 Italian peninsula, and, and so forth. And that migration has got a great title uh, called the, the Kurgan migration or the Kurgan theory, spelled exactly like uh, the bad guy in Highlander. Right. Is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it just sounds like a cool name. That was one of these theories that was kind of debunked. It was a lady called uh, Maria Kimbutas came up with it, uh, I think, 60s, I think it was. And it was kind of various other theories came up and sort of not debunked it, but scholarship moved on. But actually, I think recent genetic studies on graves have been found actually bears it out. It more or less did happen as she uh, theorized. And there's various diagrams you can see on uh, sort sort of on the internet and Facebook sort of showing this sort of spread sort of into Europe uh, from this sort of uh, grassland plain sort of homeland, uh, and obviously carrying this wolf cult, this 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 notion with them, uh, sort of into all these other places, and that's where we begin to see it take form and take root. And just to put some perspective on this about the Indo-Europeans mm. and how, just you know, for the audience how successful they were in that a great majority of the world's languages are Indo-European. Oh, and absolutely. Oh, this, can trace their roots back, yeah. Right. And the, and the language we are speaking now is Indo-European. And that includes just about every language in Europe. And it includes... Some our, in it, India as well. It, Kurdish, um, Farsi, you know, Sanskrit... Uh, as an ancient language but also indo-european so there's like this movement of where they were in the middle of i guess would be central asia 
And then like one group went to the west and one group went to the east. So that's how Pretty successful much. they were. Well, the, there's there's been linguistic analysis, which sounds a bit like a pseudoscience, but uh, again, it's one of these, these very obscure branches, but it has been borne out. Because um, as the language, you know, as people move around and they live further away, their language obviously shifts over hundreds of years. Yeah. So, for example, like a P might become a V, or a P might become a B, and that's that's a very simplistic example. But that's so uh, you know, um, for example, like uh, the the Latin word pater for for father becomes father because the P becomes an F sound mm-hmm. over time. It it seems unlikely, but that's that's been sort of proved. But what uh, some linguistic uh, some ex- some experts have, have done is trace that back further, kind of um, reverse engineering it. It's, that's probably not, not the correct term. To what's called a, a theoretical language that the people there might have spoken. Now, I know that sounds hugely sort of speculative, but it's been borne out by a, a, a weird sort of study that was done, I think, in the, in the 1930s or 40s, where a linguist came up with this theory that said, if this linguistic analysis we're, we're doing is correct... If we find a language in this area, sort of, um, it's probably going to look like this. And that was an interesting theory. And everybody said, well, it was published in some little journal, and that was fine. But then when they found the Hittite library um, and translated it, wasn't the absolutely right. All those shifts of vowels and uh, of uh, consonants, rather, it were all exactly there. So although it sounds like, it's an awful lot of theoretical, hypothetical stuff. It has been borne out by scholarship and actual archaeology that's that's sort of been sort of bolted into this uh, anthropology. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The, that. I mean, I think since like with well, the 19th century, they kind of looked at it and said all oh, these languages are very, very similar. Mm. And and I guess that this this wolf cult goes into the. Uh, I guess into each and every group. Do you see that as well? That there's the the, the different uh, subsets that they divided Absolutely. into. You see uh, that you see that just kind of as a overarching theme. Well, well, particularly in in um, the the Greek Peninsula, the further north you go, the more evidence there is of wolf cults or wolf worship or something involving wolves or wolf wolf transformations and things like that. I mean, Herodotus describes a particular ritual where somebody turns into a wolf for a year, and as long as they don't eat human flesh, hmm. then they turn back into a human. Um, but again, it's it's Thrace, which is sort of the very sort of northern bit of uh, Greece there. And um, there's various um, Greek gods are described as being... So, I mean, it, it's important to note it's not just the male aspect here because there is a female connection as well. It's it's a, it's a thinner thread, but there is something there as well. Um, there's a the mother of Apollo, uh, Leto. Um, her children were suckled by wolves. Now, whether that's symbolically or, or whatever, but they certainly were. And she settled in the the, the land of the wolves that that was renamed and that sort of thing. So. There's this again. Again, you see this this wolf connection and and, and wolf symbolism, uh, particularly particularly in Greece. And does it, sorry, go on. Oh no, go ahead. I was just going to say that that uh, when I mentioned the adolescent sort of concept, mm-hmm. uh, there's a particular uh, group of very lightly armoured or 
I don't want to say cannon fodder, but the the guys at the front certainly in in in, in Greek warfare, who were very lightly armoured, and sort of lived in common, wore very little clothes, and they were associated with wolves as well. So they get that sort of like an adolescence connection there. So young warriors, probably landless, you know, not much money, but you could join this group, and you could become one of those sort of. Uh, you know, if, if, if you did sort of uh, go through the ringer and survive, you might be able to find your fame and fortune. But that is certainly absolutely there. When you when you spoke about the young being sent out to basically kind of live with the wolves and to act like them, I, I the first thing I thought of was the beginning of the movie 300. <laughs> well, yeah. Did I mean, the Spartans the kind of identify <laughs> themselves somewhat as well? Not not as much as you might think. I, 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 it's 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 more the 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 north of, of Greece, where the Spartans were much further south. Yeah, Spartans had a very different sort of uh, concept. Um, I mean, the whole point of the story within Three Hundred is a little sidebar here: is that it's an exaggerated tale told to somebody else to spur them on to war. That's the movie. Yeah. So this guy has exaggerated everything. Oh, we did this. Oh, the you know the 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 Persians. You know the the lead guys, twenty foot tall. They have guys with like sort of split arms. They have with bombs. We need your help. You know. Um, so that's it's 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 meant to be an overblown tale um, to sort of spur the the rest of Greece on to to help them in a sense. Um, we do find that um, if, for example, is an awful lot of these adolescent. Uh, people sort of did raids on places. Now, it's described often in the histories as, as a war. We had a war with the such and such people, or the, the war against this island. But actually, those wars were more like what you might call like a like a raid. Some young guys go and nick some stuff. We've we've had a war against you know the such and such island. So it's concepts, although they have the same name to them, might not be quite what we think they are. And the same with it the concept of the werewolf has, although we've got the same name for it, it means something culturally very, very different as it goes through. Sure. Uh, I mean, particularly, I mean, uh, the, the god Apollo, for example, is connected intimately with wolves and wolf worship. Every time we found an Apollo, a, a coin with Apollo on it, on the reverse, is a wolf. Really? And he was, yeah, well, he's well, one of the, uh, 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 children of Leto, the the other god, uh, the goddess I mentioned, who was and he was suckled by wolves, and his son Miletos again was suckled by wolves. Um, so there's this thing of gods being nurtured by wolves in some in some respect. Um, and of course, the famous yeah. one with the Romans is Romulus and Remus. Romulus and Remus, yes, uh, you get the um, famous sort of statue. I think it's called the 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 Capitoline Wolf. Um, it's actually not that big, the statue. I, I always imagined it being this enormous, yeah. impressive sort of 20-foot across, massive wolf. It's actually quite small, uh, relatively speaking. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about it, uh, the wolf was actually carved in about 1100 AD, whereas the twins underneath it were added about 300 years later. Oh, really? So it's not an ancient Roman statue, then? Well, 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 it might. It may be that the original statue was damaged. It could be something as simple as that. Okay, we don't know, somebody restored it at a certain point. Yeah. Presumably, it meant something there. Um, but the interesting thing about the the 
there's a there's a particular pose of the wolf where it's turning its head to look at the 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 two babes suckling on it um and that exact pose is found in some mosaics which are self second century bc and that that sort of era um so it's definitely the same pose it was certainly a a known thing um I mean, the, uh, the other thing about um, Romulus and Remus, there's one theory says that they weren't literally suckled by wolves, but they perhaps were cast out of one tribe and went to a perhaps a matriarchal wolf cult hmm. tribe uh, who, who, who takes them in and they become champions and the kings and what have you. So they, quote unquote, suckled at the, uh, suckled at the wolf. That's the sort of, you can imagine, so it's like, oh, they, you know, they've gone over to that side now. Uh, yeah, it's symbolic no evidence for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the, but the symbolism and the actual literalism get intermingled, and of right. course, people love people love a good story. So you know. Well, the Romans, I mean, they identified with wolves very explicitly. Hmm. Like there were several things in their culture. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Well, there's the Lupercalia festival, um, where men wore skins of some sort. Um, not necessarily wolf skins, but certainly animal skins and ran through the streets as this sort of wild, sort of crazy abandoned thing that might have been a sort of precursor to Valentine's Day. Um, but interesting, there's, there's a, a sort of a fertility aspect to that. They would strike the hands of women who were infertile with, with sort of sticks or something. Um, so there's that, again, that, feminine aspect to it as well which is unusual but this the the the, the concept of the uh, wolves there um interestingly um there's a particular another roman connection is there's a column which is celebrates trajan's vic, uh, victory by trajan uh, the emperor trajan I should say and it has uh, all these carvings of various um sort of warriors and legionaries and you know centurions and so forth as well as various irregulars who've been drafted from all parts of the empire and as far as i understand it all the carvings pretty accurate in terms of the dress of the military and the the the, the appearance of them and in the, in the midst of this is one group of guys who are kind of clearly a particular group of fighters stripped to the waist big big guys but with clubs and there's another group of guys who are quite heavily armored wearing what looks like wolf pelts on top of their armor and michael spidel has um, theorized that those are people from the germanic tribes who've been drafted in as mercenaries or auxiliaries and hmm. uh, to sort of to to fight as a as an additional unit of uh, people. Now we don't really know much um, about what they were doing there because at, at this point, they, I think the Germanic tribes were pretty much pre-literate. They might have had the beginnings of runes or that sort of thing, but certainly they were there. Also, they're described as such. Um, so there is that connection there. And uh, another uh, thing is this this concept of Romulus and Remus was still around. By the 8th century, um, in, in France, there's this marvelously carved box called the Casket of the Franks or the Franks Casket, which has a combination of Germanic mythology and 
sort of Christian mythology and Roman mythology, and there on it is uh, Romulus and Remus suckling at the female wolf. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> so you know that, that that's that's thing you know you, you can go and see it's so and it's got various other, it's got Jesus and various other things very in, intricately carved it, it, it's an exquisite piece of work so it would have been phenomenally expensive at that time but uh, so certainly see see that symbolism there. What about in in Germanic? Because because you know I think the German aspect or the Germanic aspect of this is the most probably obvious. Well, I just want to mention um, the the first ever werewolf tale is is from Roman times. Oh, really? Okay. It's a it's a guy called um, Petronius who writes how he goes for a walk with a soldier one night. They go for a walk, and at one point, the soldier takes off all his clothes and runs off into the woods. Uh, to which point, he's, what's all that about? And he's a bit scared and goes home, and hears about from farmers and stuff that somebody had savaged their sheep and stuff there was this huge wolf appeared and then later on the, the soldier reappears with this sort of cut on his arm and uh, the farmer says oh I, I couldn't catch the wolf but I managed to cut his leg and it hmm. escaped and that's you know classic werewolf tale yeah, right. it's at yeah. night he t- takes off the clothes so that's a you know a long way back in the history so but that's that's pretty much the werewolf tale fully formed sat there in the Roman era well, let me ask you this about about werewolves. Um, you know, uh, maybe people are actually turning into wolves. It's possible. Mm. Yeah. But could there be some kind of link to this fascination with the wild, the wildness of a wolf, or maybe even a link to like some kind of hallucinogenic? I mean, the, it's a tempting theory. It's a tempting yeah. theory, really. Um, the, the the concept of the wilderness meant different things to different cultures, and 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 being wild and what that actually meant. Um, and for example, you know, the the people from the countryside and the wilderness and what have you were regarded as being sort of ignorant. I suppose nothing changes. I mean, people still have poor views of people who are outside of the urban centres now, but. That's where I, that's actually the origin of where the word um, pagan comes from. Uh, the paganists, the people from the country. Oh, right. they they do all their stupid rituals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those guys. <laughs> you know, this, this is Romans who are sacrificing to gods and what have you. And no, no, no. It's those guys are the weirdos. Yeah. Um, but you know, pe- people have always othered other people, and that's how it goes. Um, it, it is a. It is just a notion. I mean, sort of going further back. So, so uh, I meant to mention one the one connection with the the full moon. Again, this is highly speculative. Um, this is uh, by an author called Knight, um, who speculates that the way that people hunted outside of their villages, they would hunt best by the full moon. So again, if they're hunting, they would copy the the way that the wolves would would hunt hunting packs and what have you yeah. and that sort of synonymous sort of concept of we must be like wolves they hunt all the time and they do well we should be like them and that sort of concept gets mixed up into mythology the other potential thing which as you see again is with women being leaders of the hunt and you think well they wouldn't really be leading the hunt that's unlikely in any culture certainly in, in that era so potentially it might and again this is 
his, his theory, not not mine, um, that it was when women were menstruating or in the in the menstrual cycle is when the men would go out. So you get that in connection with blood and that sort of thing. That's from a uh, an analysis by a guy called uh, his first name. Uh, Knight uh, is his surname. Uh, the book's called, I think it's called Blood Relations or Blood Rights. And sort of that's a fascinating concept that, that the cycles of the moon is how they would hunt and it's how, you know, a woman become fertile and that sort of connection there is very intriguing. We can't really nail it down into facts, but it's certainly highly suggestive there. Absolutely. I, I wanted to say that I was reading a book, I believe it's called King Solomon's Ring, about animal behavior, and it's talking about the initial domestication of dogs and how the you know their their predecessors, the the wolves, would you know hang out around uh, the outskirts of the temporary human uh, habitations. So I guess that really that really ties into where that symbolism came from of these. Uh, warrior cults and and young men living outside of the village, outside of the central area. Oh, certainly. But again, you've got to remember how far back the domestication of dogs and wolves began. Right. I mean, there's uh, this uh, that place, um, Gobleki Tepe. I think there's some carvings there of wolves, uh, of of dogs of some sort. Uh, I think there's something at Katalhoyuk in in Turkey, and in it's a place in Saudi Arabia where they found very sort of old carvings. And I think there's some recently discovered ones in North Africa. Um, so you can see, I think there's actually one of a man, it looks like a man walking his dog. It probably isn't, but that's how it looks to the uneducated eye. Very interesting. Uh, oh, sure. I mean, the, the people and dogs and animals are living closer, and would they have seen themselves as separate from animals? It's impossible to know what the psychology of that would be. What about Hecate? Oh, well... <laughs> How long have we got? I mean, <laughs> Hecate is a really interesting uh, sort of goddess and uh, linked in with necromancy and all kinds of sort of cool stuff there. Um, you know, sort of, she's, I, I guess, you know, she, she has a fascinating name to her, but um, she, she's, again, described as being linked to Thrace. Again, we're back to sort of northern Greece. She's goddess of magic and crossroads and um, I think she has uh, some, sometimes represented by three wolves or, or, or three threefold statue, heralded by howling wolves and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's a reference to uh, and and I really think, kind of dogs are interchangeable there because she's very associated with dogs, dogs and wolves. Again, yeah. they, they're somewhat. Uh, there's, a, there's a notion of I think. It's described in one book where people sort of looking down on these these weirdos up in Thrace uh, that they ate dogs, but ritually cooked and ate them at a particular feast or or particular uh, sort of ritualistic way, Um, which again, very intriguing there. But um, there is some fascinating stuff there. I mean, uh, oh, I should also mention there's, um, I mentioned Apollo earlier, Apollo's sister, Artemis. Diana in the other pantheon, um, goddess of the hunt. In most statues you'll see of her, she's got a dog or a hound or some sort of uh, candid beside her. Um, and there's a really weird and wonderful sort of um, piece of poetry linked to her, which is, which is I'm just going to see if I can dig that out for you now. And Diana Artemis is sometimes linked up to Hecate. 
as well, I've discovered. Well, that is pretty much what this, this poem will kind of bear out. It sounds yeah. like it's Hecate. It is attributed to um, Artemis, but it's, it is um, suggestive of, of Hecate. So perhaps the goddesses were interchangeable. It's unlikely, but it, it, it is possible. I think there's a, what is it? Um, yeah. Come, goddess of the road, of the parting of the ways, luminous night wanderer, enemy of the night, uh, delighting in the night and friendly towards it, who rejoices in the barking of dogs and in the gory blood <laughs> and walks among the corpses and the barrows of the dead. I mean, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like Hecate, but apparently that's, a, that's meant to be Artemis, so there you go. Um, so, the, the, again, I mean, I'm kind of going back on myself a little bit here, but it, the the... The, you, you can see there's so many different strands uh, that fit into this this puzzle. Um, certainly, Greece is a hotbed of, and certainly northern Greece, of wolf cults and wolf worship and dog sacrifice and so forth. I, I mentioned Hecate, but, uh, well, I had it written down here to ask you about, but... What would jog my memory too is that you know this idea of Hecate as a Chthonic deity. In other words, she's something older that is worshipped beyond Zeus and the, the pantheon of gods. And when you mentioned about the 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 site in Ukraine with the, the 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 dog sacrifice, it made me think of her for some reason. Like the, this could be that memory. Of that cult are these old, old thousands things that goes back at thousands of years yeah. are are memorized or memorialized by these by these beings or these oh, well, certainly, uh, goddesses. Certainly, uh, the, uh, uh, certainly Hecate could be um, the, one of the references to Leto, who's the 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 mother of Apollo. Um, she's described as coming from the north or Hyperborea or some ancestral thing and as soon as she gives birth to Apollo then she ceases to be in the story which to my mind suggests that that's an older god that's kind of come down and kind of and then the the local cults have merged and she's no longer of any relevance and and what have you um so it is uh um in terms of Hecate there's there's a lot of modern writing on her which you know you'd have to take with a pinch of salt or or throw the salt over your th- shoulder, depending upon how, uh, your belief. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so, it, again, she, she's to do with sort of necromancy and, and, yeah. and that sort of thing. But uh, whether that was just a bad press at the time, or whether just because they had a, a god and a goddess for everything, so there is always that. I mean, the other goddess, of course, of that era is uh, Circe. Um, She's described as a goddess of magic, uh, of magic, and has a mansion in the woods. She's got um, not to be confused with Queen Cersei. No, no. Uh, although <laughs> pronounced the same, but yeah. uh, C I R C E, or yeah. uh, it might be Cherche. I don't know what the actual official pronunciation is. Uh, but she, but she's surrounded by uh, this man. Now it says a mansion in the woods is, is the translation that comes down to us, and that's not just a large dwelling. It's probably a cur- more, more correct thing um but she's it's surrounded by docile but drugged wolves so there's there's your uh, uh potentially a drug connection there but they're described as very docile or subservient in some way when uh, you 
I I had heard you on another show talking about that, the mansion in the woods, and it just made me think about the two girls that went to the, here in the United States that tried to kill their friend to go live with Slender Man in a mansion in the woods. Well, I, I think if you're basing your mythology off a computer game, then then you may have deeper problems, perhaps, I think. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but see, that's a modern-day mythology. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah the, 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 you do get uh, all kinds of modern-day mythology. I've got a few... If we if we have time at the end, I'll throw a, uh, I'll throw a few of you that are that are non wolf related. Sure. Um, but um, one of the other uh, sort of before I get to the Germanic thing, which is there's a lot to talk about there. But um, there's also reference to wolves and wolf behaviour in in Ireland. And you think that's the furthest reach of this Indo-European spread of culture, but there are distant, but there are linguistic connections there. I think um, there's a reference to. Uh, w- robbing and thieving is described as wolfing hmm. uh, in, in various of Christian sources. And there's one or two heroes of that era who live outside the, 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 the main sort of places. They live in the wild places. They, 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 they do what they like. Uh, and some like Finn, Finn McCool and people, and people like that, these sort of legendary heroes who, you know, they have to be able to, jump their own height and lift their own weight and do all these amazing sort of feats of, you know, uh, sort of skill. Um, but there, as that becomes into the recorded era, it's described as actually sort of, um, wolfing behavior. Um, I mean, there, there's, there's one particular group of people who, uh, the, the sons of Don Dessa and, um, one guy was a sort of a stepson or an adopted son, and he became a king. And this is recorded in one particular sort of cycle. And um, he says that he 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 can no longer go wolfing with his with his brothers. Oh. He can't go out and, and and raid the countryside and do the do the wild crazy things. Um. Uh, so there's again you see in that sort of living outside. There's a speculation as well about some of the Irish heroes. Again, speculation that or everything they do is heroic. They never do anything bad. Never do anything, or certainly that we would think of as bad in a kind of Judeo-Christian sort of Western civilization sort of concept. Um, there's a suggestion that maybe some of those stories were edited, so these sort of raiding another village and killing and putting everyone with the sword isn't there. So they might have been more brutal in the original versions, but obviously it was Christian monks who wrote them down and they're not, well, we'll, we'll not have that. It will just make them all heroic all the time um, by their standards. Right. How, how um, does the, um, the wolf as trickster archetype fit into some of these cults? The, the wolf as trickster is a generally in, 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 the, in terms of folklore and fairy tales, the wolf generally comes off worse Right in in most sort of fairy tales, um, my daughter's very very interested in wolves as well, but she likes sort of fairy tales and that sort of thing. And in most, there's, there's a there's a particular I don't know what it is, but all fairy tales have been catalogued into various sort of categories. There's 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 huge long sort of particular um, numerical values to each fairy tale, so it can be traced throughout history. And most of the stories about the fox and the wolf, there's a series of stories like that. 
the fox is the clever one and the wolf is the stupid one being literally okay. outfoxed yeah tends not to be a trickster certainly not in the stories that i've come across it's more just generally either completely malevolent or or or, or stupid Total, totally wild totally primitive yeah I, I, actually except for one story there is one story from russia uh where the wolf is the help is the helpful um it's it's actually the story of the firebird where this guy has to go and steal a firebird and this wolf gives him some advice and they go, go somewhere else he has to complete a series of tasks essentially and then he he meets a you know he, he gets violently attacked and this wolf magical wolf brings him back to life and the day is saved but that's one of the very few benign wolf stories um which is interesting there as opposed to i know there's some examples in native american lore and the coyotes mm. especially but mm. you you find way more just totally dark malevolent role well not necessarily malevolent but certainly the stories that come down was tend not to be because you got to think of the way the wolves were they were essentially a, not necessarily a threat but certainly a challenge to the uh to the people you know if you're living somewhere to keep them out of your your sort of homestead or whatever right. I remember they could have two two letters a year so they could proliferate mm. um so they were dangerous perhaps yeah. more of a more of a perceived threat than an actual threat but certainly you hear the wolves howling in the night you know better bolt the door please you know that that sort of thing yeah um so much so that they're virtually non-existent in europe right Oh well, they were hunted to extinction. Um, yeah. I think there was a, there's, there's records of, you know, the hunters could get so much money per pelt, and that sort of thing. It, it was a a big deal. Um, it was, they were hunted to extinction in Ireland, certainly, but there was there was various other sort of places where they continue to exist. But certainly in Europe and Scotland and, and Ireland, uh, sorry, in England, Scotland, Ireland, they were hunted to extinction. Wow. I mean, they're still here in in the U.S., but not mm. not in our area. I mean, they're no. they're gone in the eastern United States. Although uh, the uh, coyotes are breeding with domesticated dogs, and that's been there's been an explosion in population around around our whole country. Yeah, it's really interesting yes, I read about that. Into, yes, yeah. it's it's created like a new breed, a new sort of creature. That's and they're very yeah, they're very intelligent, and I guess they're just going crazy. <laughs> So maybe they're, you know, that's kind of a, maybe they're uh, kind of coming back. Getting their revenge. Yeah. (laughs) The, uh, uh, we got to talk about the berserkers. Sure, sure. Um, Well, if you imagine, we talk about this culture spreading throughout Europe uh, and various places. And the the last places it ends up is Ireland and Scandinavia. Or, or should we say, the Germanic area. There was no obviously country designations at this time. So, um, if you imagine this this concept of this warrior band or outside of the 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 mainstream of the of, of the farmers, the actual people doing the the main jobs of society. Um, now, obviously, in those primitive primitive times, it was all young people, and they would then be absorbed back into the tribe and then the next generation would be so you'd have this standing army of people who for want of a better phrase it doesn't matter if you lose them because they're not married they don't have a trade they're outside they're young you know whatever so if they fight and die it doesn't matter or it doesn't matter as much um now as this this sort of concept travels across europe 
and um, it, we saw it was in Greece as well. Um, the, in the sort of Scandinavian era, it takes this whole new form because they didn't become urbanized in the same way that Rome and Greece and other places did. So it didn't sort of settle down and become another kind of cult worship thing. It just stayed at this sort of, I don't say primitive, but more uh, sort of straightforward level of this notion of, of uh, sort of cults outside of uh, the normal ma- mainstream. Now, I've got to be careful because we've got to untangle an awful lot here with in terms of berserkers and the wolfskins and various other things here. It's important to remember that even as they were being described in the sagas and things like that, they were being half-mythologized anyway, these, the, the, these concepts. Sure. But they, were, but they certainly were recorded you know, um, in Harold Fairhair's army. Uh, it's around 872, and they mentioned in Vatsandela saga, Halsikvetis, and uh, Vulsinger saga, and one or two others. Um, so they're certainly described, and I have them in my army, and that sort of thing is, is, is certainly recorded. What they were, and what they did, and how they did it, is a lot more vague. Um... There's a, there's a number of theories out there. Um, could they have been people who were suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, the berserkers? They're wild, crazy guys. Okay, we'll put those people who are as likely to attack their own forces as anybody else. Just put them at the front and let them do what they do or do it, you know, let, let them go wild. Was it some cultural way of dealing with that? Because remember, there's warfare all the time and if you're seeing that some people aren't going to cope with that so we'll just that's a, a cultural response to that we'll call them berserkers we'll put them at the front guys who are do you want to go into a battle with with no armor on and just you know you know you know, you know scare the whatever out of the you know the army you know, and, and some of them probably really liked it they probably really just like killing people sure sure yeah. i mean there's certainly that um uh, the, uh, I don't think that's, that's that's new in the human condition that there are people who like that. <laughs> right. For everybody who joins the army to, to, to for genuine patriotic reasons, unfortunately, there is a sort of 5% or whatever it is they, they say, or 1% who are literally joining it. Oh, great, I get to go and shoot people and, and, and get away with it. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate but, there, but there it is. You know. Right. Um, well, I've spoken to people who are, who, who've served and they said, you know, you get, there's certain categories and unfortunately they've run into some people who are like that who really like it unfortunately um but again another thing there's a there's another theory here because the uh what they could have been is perhaps military specialists perhaps now prior to this all the warfare had been quite small like skirmishes between people but as the war warfare gets bigger and bigger as people, uh, as the armies, and somebody wants to take over bigger and bigger areas, you can have a big enough sort of framework where you can finance people who can train all the time, and not just train a bit of the time, but be farmers and blacksmiths and fishermen or whatever. I'm going to take the best fighters. You guys can train all the time, be be my best fighters, so that when I have a battle, they will be twice as good as other people because. They are literally training all the time, as opposed to just doing it in between plowing fields and that sort of thing. A permanent warrior class, exactly, which is a new thing, certainly in in, 
in the culture. Uh, and there's a potential that they might have taken some kind of totem, sort of some sort of notion of, a, of, an, of an animal as yeah. to what, they, what they're doing. Um, now, we're getting into the realms of speculation here. So this isn't historical fact. This is uh, the- theoretical. So one uh, theory goes that you have three classes of warrior. The berserkers, who are, imagine, the biggest, biggest people. So they don't have any particular specific specialist skills, but they're just going to go in and just bludgeon people with a big stick or, a, you know, with a big axe or whatever. So just shoot by sheer size. And that'll be their technique. You get the um, wolf heathening, the, the 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 wolf coat guys who are more heavily armoured, so they're more like um, like a strike force. They'll they'll rush in, you know, but but they've still got some armour on them. And the and there's a theory, there's the third one which is less well known, uh, the boar group, the the boar cult, the Svinfilking. Um, now you might think often people think of boars and, and pigs. Uh, people can think of like the domestic pig, not very scary, not very particularly, but actual wild boars are enormous animals and quite, quite dangerous. So they would take that as their totem. Uh, and so be even more heavily armored. And there's a particular formation called the boar snout where they would try and break the line of the opposing army. So obviously for that role, you need to be very highly trained and very heavily armored. So imagine these these three types of standing sort of a warrior class. If that happens for more than two or three generations, or even two generations, you're going to get a particular. There's going to be rituals involved. There's going to be whether they're religious or just this is the way we train. Yeah, it's hard to know, but certainly they would have been a, a class apart in some way. What about modern military symbolism? Mm. Well, I mean, the, 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 you see that again because uh, that's where the um, in uh, the you see, the you see the palace guard in England have that uh, you know the uh, you know the big sort of bushy hats and things like that. I'm told that the, on some military insignia and things they have very very small uh, piece of not fur but something quite fluffy, and that would have been a larger sort of pelt. And over time, that's a bit reduced and reduced and reduced to just a sort of symbolic little sort of tuft on the actual medal or insignia or something like that. It's a, a sort of that. I mean, obviously you get it in, I believe in some military groups as well in America uh, where they have a, an actual patch with, a, with an actual animal on, but um, that's, I think it's quite a more sort of, uh, late edition rather than being uh, a direct linear tradition right the way back to sort of Indo-Europeans, much as I would like it to be a connection there. But yeah. well, The, the yeah. Third Reich definitely drew upon some of this mythology in, in, in some of their groups, especially I think towards the end of the war they had the werewolf groups. I think they were to be uh, sure. some of the last fighters. I think they were the, the young people mostly too. Well, there was a thing called Operation Werewolf. Yeah, that yeah. Was the, their idea of being when Germany's been defeated, you guys can be sort of, uh, well, I, I won't say freedom fighters because that's not really what we associate with Nazis, but sort of a, uh, sort of guerrillas in the hills type thing uh, yeah. and sort of attacking and striking, um, which is an interesting concept and probably would make a great movie, but I don't think there was that many of them and there were certainly 
I think, think the fight has gone out with the German people. There's very few people actually did it. Right. I think the name has more cachet than anything else. But it certainly had the old Germanic spelling of werewolf without the second E. So Werwolf, you know, that was the idea that they would live in the wild and come and strike, cause havoc uh, when they could. Do you also talk a little bit about the female werewolves? You sent me a lecture that you did, which I thought was mm. was very interesting. And there was one story that you talked about where it was kind of a medieval legend about 300 female werewolves attacking oh. a town or something. <laughs> oh, this is this is a, it's a great... It is medieval clickbait, literally. Uh, it, it, <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm yeah. absolutely... I, 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 uh, Stick with me on this uh, medieval clickbait. There'd been a very gruesome case uh, prior to this. A guy called Peter Stubb or Stuber had committed horrendous acts, like we would think of as like serial killer, like a really gruesome stuff, and had, had uh, been prosecuted and, and, and executed for that. So obviously, some enterprising pamphleteer had thought there's money there, so published this pamphlet saying, well, this is not the end of the werewolf situation. There's been 300 female werewolves have stormed the poor defenseless city of Ulich or Ulich. Uh, and, and, oh, hundreds dead. It's terrible. Read on to find out the rest of the story or click here to find out now. You won't believe what happened next, you know. Um, but the actual story, when you actually read the pamphlet, is that one woman was accused of being a werewolf and implicated some others and I don't think any, maybe, maybe one person died. <laughs> it's just this huge gory sort of, you know, it's, it, it's all in the headline, you know? Um, so it's, it, it's an infamous case, uh, in, in terms of all oh, female werewolves, but it, it, it was very much about, uh, all about the cell and less about the story. I think, uh, huh. very little has changed. I think <laughs> we think of clickbait as a new thing. I don't think it is. I don't think it is, uh, but I, I think, which, which brings me to the, the, the next stage after this sort of, you know, they talk about we're talking about the, the berserkers and the, the wolf pelts people, uh, the, the wolf skins and uh, the Savinville King. The story kind of splits in two at this point because those guys who were specialists, once the wars are over, what are you going to do? You've not trained as a farmer or a shoemaker or a fisherman. You've got a problem then because all your skills are for fighting and fighting and killing and there's no more wars left it looked like they were going to invade Iceland and then they didn't um, so essentially at this point they become generic bad guys in a lot of the sagas oh the berserkers they're, they're the bad guys they're the wild crazy people um, so they become this kind of uh, almost like a parody of what they've been in the same way that people sometimes parody like, like SWAT teams now you know that the, the genuine SWAT guys are pretty sort of hardcore and what have you, but um, people parody them because of you know sort of cultural mores and that sort of thing. So I think that's the sort of territory it then unfortunately heads into these sort of wolf cult guys on are, are no longer needed. They're no longer financed and become little better than thieves, right. which happened a lot in medieval in the medieval age. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, the, but again, but but then again, you get this this wolf connection again because they're thieves and they're living outside of society and they're landless and and they're uh, probably unmarried and the the new word that is used to apply to them uh, there's a word for 
there's two words for wolf in the sort of Germanic sort of um, there's the word that we know like like wolf or ulf and you see that in a lot of names that people like that name or like to be associated with it so you get Thorolf and Rolf and Hrolf and various other names like that but the other name for a wolf was Varg or Varga which is also translates as outlaw hmm hmm so there's that connection, like you know, you're a wolf, you're a person who lives outside, you're a, you're a bad guy, we want nothing to do with you. Yeah, you're kind it's of possible. a liminal yeah. person, yeah. Definitely. Yep. Uh, particularly uh, when you think of places like like Iceland, to live outside the, the 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 cities or villages there was, unless you were thieving, it, it it was a death sentence because there was no way to get food. It wasn't like you could just pop to the store or anything like that you you would have to take everything by by theft right well something i found really interesting about all this material is that these societies really they found a way to channel this antisocial behavior through these cults and it's just it's really interesting and and it was a realistic way of looking at, hey, we've got these young people, you know, they don't have property, they're not married yet, is a way of giving them something to do and finding a place within society, but out at the same time. And I don't know how we would do it, but it, it seems like our our cultures nowadays could really uh, kind of take a page from that because now it's like we don't, you know, we expect the young men to not be... Um, antisocial and engage in behaviors that you know many of them will that's the reality mm. and we kind of you know use the uh, the judicial system to just you know basically throw them away would it they kind of you know it seems like a the best way possible to have you know dealt with these these uh, young men well I, th- I think that the only sort of, and this is a real stretching analogy. We used to have something in England called uh, apprenticeships. Which, right. uh, we still have them, but it's not not quite the same. So that would be like working in a in a factory or a like a, a manufacturing plant and that sort of thing. And it, you would leave school at say fifteen or fourteen, and if you weren't going to stay on into higher education, as most people didn't, you would get an apprenticeship. And that would be great because that that would lead to a job as long as you stayed there. Right. But in the apprenticeship, you would have to conform and behave because you'd be working alongside men. And if you caused a problem, you know, you would literally have to fit in. You would have to conform or, you, you know, you, you'd be out. You, you, you would have no money or you wouldn't be able to do anything. So it was a, a shock to the system perhaps, but it was a way of – Suddenly, you're working alongside people who are forty, and you're fourteen. Uh, you, you would have to conform, or or they would uh, tell you exactly how you would behave, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, if you imagine uh, you got to work at, uh, 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 I don't know what, what the equivalent would be in in America, but say a big sort of uh, back in the day of like a big sort of Detroit sort of motor plant or something like that, you would have to conform and behave. It wasn't a matter of oh, I'll just continue my my adolescent behavior well you know you 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 fit in or you're gone and then they had ways to you know if they survived i guess reintegrate them into society or they could in in some of these cases before you had more of these permanent warrior classes they Mm. could uh you know after their if they've got their glory and they didn't die 
they could probably take on something else and get married and get some property, etc. Well, the, the the way that they might have existed longer is in the Byzantine Empire, where they were. They you probably heard of the the Varangian Guard, mm-hmm. right? Um, where sort of these these guys who've done nothing but fight all their lives in sort of over. Uh, uh, by our terms, uh, very small prizes, essentially, and were recruited into the um, sort of army of the Byzantine Empire and immediately massively outclassed the fighters there who were just randomly recruited guys who were given you know a couple of months' training and were a little better than guards. Um, so you can imagine somebody who's been holding a sword as uh, you know from as soon as they could hold one you know they've that sort of level of endemic warfare just didn't exist outside of scandinavia and the germanic areas really um so you can imagine that uh fearsome sort of approach to to battle just you, you would take to it like a duck to water and compared to that you know they they i think for several hundred years fighters were still going to the Byzantine Empire, actually, after they converted to Christianity and everything else, they were mm-hmm. still going. Because if you want to just do nothing but fight, and you didn't want to be a, a you know, a, a fisherman sort of, or do take take a trade, that was seen as a as a good career path. Um, now, this is where there's a really interesting thing that there's a there's a reference in the sagas to metal couldn't touch them. As in, they they couldn't be struck, or they, you know, that now some people speculate in a kind of esoteric way that they were magical in some way that bounced off them, or maybe they took a, some kind of herb or drug, which meant they didn't feel the pain, or perhaps they knew what we would think of as a martial art of some sort, long long lost. Now we we can't even hope to recreate it, but if they knew some kind of martial art, or or what we would call that now a way of just fighting very very well it would just be a natural way of fighting perhaps and uh, it would appear possible yeah well certainly yeah because if you just fight every so often with your brother sven and you fight you know it's a guy who's just not a bit better than you but it'd be the equivalent if you know if you did a bit of boxing every saturday versus somebody who was who, who trained all week the the, the difference is going to be huge uh, and, and and if he trains all year, literally does nothing but, then you're going to be outclassed beyond, you know, no matter how fit and healthy you are, yeah. you're going to be outclassed. Yeah, you will um, be. And if you imagine, take that into the next level of swords and shields and other weapons and axes. And, and obviously they were physically imposing people anyway, as described by various writers, then that would be just, you know, the, the, they would strike fear into you because obviously if you're some... Uh, lightly trained sort of guy perhaps in a largish army you see a bunch of hairy guys actually running towards you really into the <laughs> battle you know that's going to put a different spin on things you know, <laughs> you know uh, um, um, but also there's a, there's a reference where there's a, a recorded list of um, all the dances and rites of the Byzantine court uh, and it's all various sort of I wouldn't say boring, but very cultural things. This is what we do at this time. This is what we do at that time. And it mentions the the Varangian Guard uh, demonstrated their strange dances. And now, we don't know what that was, 
It's just some one line in a text. Hmm. But my guess is that that sounds like a carter or some kind of way of moving a sword or something. Because I don't think the Vikings are particularly known for their dancing. It's not mentioned in many other sources. <laughs> you usually don't think of the two together. Yeah, yeah. You don't. I mean, maybe it was, maybe it was, but... but if they were asked to demonstrate something for the court and they're the Varangian Guard and they're warriors, if they, you can imagine somebody demonstrating all the sort of sword strikes that they practice with or something like that to somebody who's not a warrior or somebody who's not a swordsman, it's going to look like, whoa, that's a bit peculiar. That's a bit strange. Was it a martial art? I mean, my guess is that it was, but it's impossible to know. Uh, so that's the sort of... Uh, Possibly how they, the people who weren't sort of post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever, who had the ability, went there. Uh, so that's one one uh, possibility, if you like. Well, Rich, thank you so much. I know it's getting late for you over there. But uh, before we let you go, you did tell us you sure. wanted to tell some new, some of the uh, modern-day mythologies. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is just a, a, a little throwaway thing. Uh, yeah. This yeah. is nothing to do with uh, wolves at all um, but we talk about sort of modern day when people hear I, I heard from a friend of a friend those those sorts of stories urban legend uh, kind of stuff uh. Uh, well uh, well there's some of them I, I've actually tried to track down and there was one I I read it in a magazine in the, in the 90s like a, a precursor to Wired um, called Mondo 2000 but there's yeah. a suggestion that um Listening to digitized music made you more violent. And I've, I've got the magazine, and, and and it's just a throwaway comment. Oh, there was a German scientist suggested that listening to music digitized made you more violent. And this long thing about CDs that were kind of still vaguely new. They were talking about the beginnings of DVDs. And I thought, that's interesting. And I have scoured the net, and there's nothing. I don't know where this is a com- com- complete falsehood. It's, but it's one of these things that's been passed around that, that digitized music because it's not pure sound, it's not analog, makes you more aggressive. <laughs> we're, we're surrounded by probably about fifteen hundred uh, records right now. So yeah, Surfield doesn't have that problem. <laughs> yeah, but all those MP3s, it's iTunes is the problem. Clearly, that's it. <laughs> You see, it's not Grand Theft Auto; it's iTunes. Clearly, <laughs> wasn't there another one about freezing CDs? Oh, the, the, yeah. This this is the one. I, I, I'm not sure whether this was a DJ sort of making fun of people. Um, <laughs> supposedly, whether you if you put a CD in the freezer, you you could hear slightly better quality. Um, uh, again, <laughs> people did it. People did it. This, uh, I know. Uh, I remember listening to a late night talk show and this uh, and this guy said, well, I've been talking about it for a while. And somebody phoned in and said, oh, I've put the dark side of the moon in. And you can hear a bit more at the end. It's really good. <laughs> more. So, uh, I, I, I kind of want it to be true, but uh, it, it it really isn't. It really isn't. And uh, there's various other things uh, where people have confessed that they started rumors, um, you know, the, the, which have been passed around for, year, for years, like... Um, Oh, there's this minor celebrity in this country who, who very, very minor sort of guy, he, he hosted a game show. And one DJ on his late night show sort of said, oh, have you ever heard the rumor about this? He said, I started it back in the late 70s. He mentioned on his show that um, this particular act, this particular uh, sort of quiz show host 
had, had played the saxophone on Baker Street by Jerry Rafferty. Uh-huh. And he thought, someone's going to phone in and say, that's complete rubbish, it's not true. <laughs> no one phoned in. So he mentioned it a couple of times every year, and still no one phoned in. And he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he was thrilled to bits when he saw it in various sort of uh, little-known facts things that were published <laughs> in newspapers and on the internet. That's great. I mean, I mean, how easy is it to seed these things into the culture, you know? Yeah. This is a, yeah. No, I'm not really related to werewolves, but there you go. (laughs) That's all how the clickbait stuff works. I mean, you know, like we were talking a little bit medieval clickbait. You know, that's how that all works. People just see something for one time, and it just it just it just explodes. I mean, that's where a lot of the 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 werewolf mythology gets all sort of blended in as well, because you can imagine some monk compiling stuff from various different sources. Greek said werewolves. That's the same thing. Germanic werewolves. Yeah, probably the same thing. And puts it all on the same page, and then uh, somebody else sort of goes off on that sort of tangent. And yeah. uh, we didn't even have time to talk about the absolutely crazy stories about the dog-headed men of the Alexandrian stories. Well, but, uh, we, we will have you back <laughs> on, sir. We'll, we'll get we'll get to that. I I believe well, that's uh, something for your listeners to uh, to look into: the dog-headed men of the Alexandrian romances. <laughs> we um, uh, so you are you are working on the book. I so, am. when do you expect the book to come out? And then also, uh, how can people see your uh, what you're working on and uh, contact you? If they if they want to contact me, or they if you do a search for uh, of Wolf and Man book, I'm on Twitter of Wolf and Man book, uh, on Facebook of Wolf and Man book, and 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 I think there's a there's a there's a WordPress site, similar sort of thing. So any sort of, um, particularly the Facebook one, I'm always sharing sort of documents or PDFs or thesis that other writers have, that I'm working into my sort of book that I'm compiling at the moment. Um, so I'm always trying to get better information out there. You know, so uh, there's all manner of things uh, on those sites, particularly the Facebook one. It's uh, on the Of Wolf and Man book, uh, which, which will be coming hopefully uh, beginning of next year um, is, is the plan. Um, if not before. Excellent. Yeah, when you get it out, we definitely want to have you back. Yes, yes, please. We can go oh. in a lot more detail on some of this stuff. Oh, I'll take out some of the really gory stories for you. Yes. Uh, excellent. That will work. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Rich, for coming on. I know it's late for you. We're going to let you get back to it, but uh, stay on the line okay. for us. And guys, we're going to close out this section on Conspiranormal. Paranormal. That was a very interesting interview with uh, Rich Blackett about wolves and berserkers and all kinds of stuff. But before we give our talk about it, which we will talk about it, Sergio, uh, we have a listener on the line. Yes, that contacted us through the Facebook page and is a fan of the show and had some very interesting information having to do with a topic that we kind of tangentially covered 
back when we had Jim Smith and William Ramsey on about the smiley face killers. And that was the Atlanta child murders. And this is our friend Dan. He li- He's from that same area. And he has some interesting information to kind of share with everybody. That's kind of an alternate take on what's generally considered the... Well, you know, that Wayne Williams did it. The official narrative. The official narrative, thank you. Uh, Dan, welcome to Conspiracy Normal, man. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Absolutely. Um, so, what is this information that you have about the the Atlanta child murders? I understand that this is, uh, this is some interesting stuff. Yeah, so basically, um, uh, one of, uh, so some years later... Uh, it's still in it, like uh, it's still in the eighties is what I'm re- referring to after Wayne Williams had been arrested, um, after, um, after the killings had ceased, uh, some years later after that, um, a mother of one of the victims had contacted a journalist from Rolling Stone magazine to come down here to Atlanta and investigate these murders because she, like most of us do not believe that Wayne Williams was r- responsible for every single one of those. And, um, to, um, kind of fast forward a little bit, uh, so these two individuals from Rolling Stone come down to Atlanta. Um, and this is where my information is just slightly foggy, but they come across information that was given to them by a retired GBI agent, an agent for the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And... Basically, what when they met this individual, he had already retired from the GBI, and um, he had with him some information that was completely different um, from what was being portrayed in the public. The information that he had gathered while investigating the Atlanta child murders basically comes from not one, but this guy was the head of an operation in the GBI who had planted not one, but two um, undercover agents in two separate groups of um, white supremacists. And each of these uh, undercover agents in these two groups um, had on that when they were bugged when they were participating in these groups and they had turned over to this GBI agent tapes and on these tapes were information from various members of these white supremacist groups, which all fed into this one leader of these, of both these groups that basically said, we're going to keep on killing these black kids. Hmm. Now, um, the closer it got to a point where the GBI, this GBI guy got to a point where he was ready to start taking public action, getting indictments, getting this, the leader of these white supremacist groups arrested based on this wiretap evidence that had been collected by the two undercover agents. Now, um, the closer he got, to 
opening up this investigation publicly, um, something happened and both of the um, undercover guys were, um, their cover was blown. And, and uh, from what I understand, um, one got away. The other one also got away, but was real, almost got killed in the process. He was basically chased through the woods, you know, fire, uh, gunfire was shot at him, but he, he managed to escape. Jeez. And shortly after these two undercover agents were outed, the investigation was pulled from this GBI agent by his superior. Now, what this agent told these guys from Rolling Stone, and, these, these, and this, this is what he, this is coming from his uh, perspective. Um, he said that an individual out of D.C. Now, I don't, I don't know who this individual was or is. I don't know his position in D.C., but he basically told the superior of this GBI agent that if you don't close down this investigation, you're going to have a massive race war all across the South because it, because of these white supremacists killing these young black children. And one factor that, that you have to incorporate into this information is, um, I apologize. I'm outside. So that car just went by. But um, (laughs) one factor you have to incorporate in the early eighties, Atlanta was going through a huge transformation. It was becoming the new business jewel of the South. You had Coca-Cola establishing its headquarters here. You had Ted Turner and CNN taking off here based out of Atlanta. You had Delta airlines establishing their hub here in Atlanta. And so the last thing that these corporate giants wanted was any type of economic hiccup that was going to ruin their bottom line. So it's not difficult, gentlemen, to, to connect the dots. You have corporate giants making, making some sort of whatever you want to call it, some sort of communique or even some sort of pact to something or someone in D.C. that says, get this shut down. And because if you don't, we're going to lose money, which means you're going to lose money. Then it filters downhill. This guy out of D.C. or this entity out of D.C., whatever it is, tells the superior person at the GBI, you get on this guy and you shut him down. What does he do? He turns around and shuts down his investigation. Um, after all that happened, this GBI agent retired immediately afterward. And the sad part is, is that, and this is, this is definitely, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say conspiratorial, this GBI agent mysteriously dies of a heart attack just a couple years later after he retires. Hmm. And so nothing, nothing was ever more mentioned um, really about the, the investigation into the white supremacist activity of the Atlanta child murders. Now, there were other theories out there, like uh, some sick kind of like, you know, child pornography ring, um, some terrorist group of some sorts, um, and all that could be true, um, but the difference in what could be true and what this guy had 
were wiretaps of these of this so-called leader of this white supremacist group. Yeah, I, I've heard I've heard the I've heard the uh, the pedophile connection because um, Dave McGowan writes about that in Program to Kill. Yeah. He mm-hmm. also he also writes about and I thought this was a very kind of extreme theory but you never know about the CDC was uh was deliberately giving these kids AIDS and they were seeing it how it uh, distributed among this pedophile these pedophile groups uh that, mm-hmm. that I think that might be a little far fetched but it, yeah uh, the the whole white supremacist aspect to it does make sense and i i have i have heard that before but i've never really looked into it and where where can people find this like what is there an article that's written about this if they want to do like some further research on it i think probably the best thing to do would be to probably just look up you know that there was a movie done called the atlanta child murders yeah Uh, it starred uh, gregory hines and um James Belushi, and um, they played the two Rolling Stone reporters. And I, just like I think I mentioned this to you before, I, I, you know, you have to be disciplined in separating fact from Hollywood when you're when you're watching that movie. Sure. And if you can, just like you would, just like you would if you're watching Oliver Stone's JFK, separate the fact from the Hollywood. If once you isolate just the facts that are that are thrown out there, and you look at them objectively. Um, it's not hard to, and and I apologize for repeating myself. It's just not difficult to connect the dots because you had the wiretaps. There was dog fur that was, um, analyzed by this GBI agent that matched the dog that was owned by the leader of this white supremacist group. Um, one of the, uh, one of the automobiles that this white supremacist leader owned, was um, identified by a dumpster, which then later, uh, where which later there was a child found, you know, murdered at that dumpster, and a, an eyewitness had is the one who identified his car. You know, I mean, it, this just goes this this stuff. If you isolate, like I said a second ago, if you isolate the facts and then put them together, it's it's not as difficult as it seems to. Um, come across this information and come to this conclusion, or at least in my own humble way, it's my opinion. Um, but if you want to, to answer your question, if you want a starting point, I would definitely go to the internet, look up the Atlanta child murders. And, and from there you can kind of, um, break down the evidence that was presented by this GBI agent and maybe go from there. I, I actually, um, had done that recently and I, it's strange because when I started clicking links, I got rerouted to um, these really ultra, ultra radical sites. Um, like you know, um, what's the word? Um, almost like you know, overthrow type of, type of type of sites from yeah. these links. And um, uh, so I, I wasn't really able to take a second look or re-verify some some of the information that's presented in that movie but also you could probably you know go online and look at some of the archives for rolling stone and look at the article that these two individuals wrote as well 
Yeah, I I think that that is I think that really is a plausible a plausible theory because there's just no no way in my mind that Wayne Williams did all of those. We know that he might yeah. have done some of them. What what's but the not total? All. What's the total amount of children? It's 20, I think 28 or something. Yeah, so it's 29, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, there's there's actually a, if you in, go on Wikipedia, there's a list of in 2 years. Yeah, from 79 to 81. Like there's known right. child victims and there's un, and there's also um and there's also the some of the adult victims. And I, I think possibly right. that more of the adults were actually because we know that Wayne Williams threw one of them in the Chattahoochee. So we know he did at right, least one right. murder. But there's, it's 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 it is a rather large amount of of children that were that were killed. Yeah, it's tw- yeah, twenty eight children. Even that timeline is a little suspect. You know, they they call it officially seventy nine to eighty one. Yeah. But uh, there was there was a, a guy who was a retired uh, investigator. And he said, listen, he says, even before 1979, there were a string of very strange, hard to, hard to find answer type of child murders in Atlanta before 1979 that really go back to 76. Mm-hmm. And then after 81, there were still more murders. Not, they weren't, they weren't uh, thrown out there to the public as much as they were when, when the spotlight was on Wayne Williams. But but that but these nonetheless you still had children going missing and being murdered after 1981. Yeah, it wasn't publicized. Exactly. At all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very interesting. Very interesting uh, stuff. Uh, Dan, we understand too that uh, you are kind of like a Bigfoot aficionado. <laughs> yes sir yes sir for a, for a lighter note I don't, I don't, yeah i don't like to call myself an investigator i don't like to call myself a researcher yeah. because there's a whole lot of other guys out there that that deserve the, those kind of titles um i'm just a guy you know i'm 50 years old so that means i was a child of the 70s which means i like many many others near my age came across a movie called the legend of boggy Creek that scared the ever living daylights out of me. <laughs> and, um, of course, Leonard Dean Moy's in search of, yeah. uh, with the Bigfoot episode. Um, those two items. Plus for some odd reason, I went to, um, I went to, uh, elementary school in upstate New York. And for some odd reason, there was a bookshelf in the library that was dedicated to nothing but Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, and ghosts. And cool. You must have had a cool admit, librarian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I have to admit that I was a kid who hated to read, but I read every single one of those ghost, Bigfoot, and Loch Ness Monster books probably ten times. And so, of course, it was the Bigfoot books that captured, you know, that captivated me the most. Um, so, you know, I, I've over the last, you know, 40 years, I've seen every documentary. I've read dozens of books. I live in a place that, and coupled with the fact that I have internet tools available to me, that it's not that difficult to pinpoint, um, an area of activity. Um, and thankfully I live only a couple hours away from a very publicly known, area of a lot of activity 
and uh, and I've had I haven't seen anything. I haven't seen a creature right in front of me or anything like that. But I've definitely had not one but two occurrences within the last twelve months. Um, and it, and and let me also say that um, the area that I investigated on my own. Uh, it's important to understand that the area that I go to has a long, long history of activity. Eyewitness accounts, sounds, howls. Um, um, as a matter of fact, that show, the Finding Bigfoot show, they've been there. The, the first episode of the very first season, they were there in the same area that I that I'm about to describe, and they've been there. They've been back there two more times since. So it, it is an area of, of a, or I should say, you just call it a hotbed of, 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 of activity. <laughs> wow. Is, can, you, can you give details on one of your experiences? Sure, sure. Um, I'll give you both, and I, I'll give you the short version so I don't take too much time. The first one happened um, in, in August of 2017, so almost a year ago. Okay. I was, I was in that area... Um, that's known for a lot of activity. And, um, I was at a, I was at a camp. I wasn't backpacking. I was just doing regular camping at a campground and the campground, it has a main road running through it or next to it. But, um, it's, there's still some pretty heavy woods, uh, surrounding it. I was, um, awakened at about two in the morning by a group of howling coyotes, which up in North Georgia, that's nothing surprising. But where it gets really strange is about, I'd say about 20 to 30 seconds after the coyotes started howling, they were completely drowned out by this super low, guttural, loud yahoo sound. Like, uh, I'll try to do an impression, although it'll sound horrible, but it was like (laughs) you had the high pitch of the coyotes, and then you hear this... Yeah, like that, you know. And, so it um, was distinctively different than uh, a coyote. Yeah, what yes, a coyote would be exactly. Yeah, and it it was so there was so much power behind this yell that I could feel it coming through the ground, up through my tent into my sleeping bag, and it literally rattled my teeth. It was so loud and powerful, and I'm thinking, you know, it's funny because I already, I popped up out of my sleeping bag and I'm thinking, my God, that is a Sasquatch. But I, it was two in the morning. I'm, I'm like half asleep and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to sit here and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> because why not, right? <laughs> What's that? Because why not, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, nothing else strange happened the rest of the night, but I, you know, um, be because I have a a baseline knowledge of what what this creature is or does. I, I just knew that had to be a, a, a bigfoot. Couple with the fact that I was pretty much in its in its home territory, you know. Creepy. And then just yeah. And then the second occurrence happened just thirty days later. Um, I, I'm in the same area, but this time now I'm backpacking, which means I'm actually hiking the trail. And I'm camping right off the trail overnight. Um, so is this I am anywhere deep close to the, the Appalachian woods. Trail? Uh, I was actually right off the Appalachian Trail. Yes. Okay. Um, now uh, 
this particular part of the Appalachian Trail, if you, um, there, there's a side trail connected to it, which will take you to a campground. Now, it's a very primitive campground. I mean, it's just, I think it, it's only like 10 or 12 slots. There's no bathrooms, no showers, no Wi-Fi, no nothing. But nonetheless, you can camp there, you know, if you want. So I decided to do that. And um, there were other campers there, which makes me happy because I was like, I didn't want to be, you know, deep in the woods by myself. And um, um, it's, it's, it was, it's, it was about, gosh, I'd say about seven thirty, eight o'clock. It was dusk. It wasn't quite dark, but it was dusk. And, um, overlooking the, the site where you could camp was a ridge about, it wasn't too high. It was only about maybe 50, 60 yards up. And so, um, some of the guys that were there were getting their campfire started. I was getting my campfire started. We kind of, you know, shook hands, said, hello, we're standing in a little circle talking with one another about, you know, the day's hike on the trail, et cetera, et cetera. And out of nowhere, this huge tree, healthy tree, by the way, comes crashing down onto the ground super loud because when you hear all that, you know, when you hear a thick tree crackling and breaking, it's so loud. And then you hear this huge thump. We all, turn, you know, stopped what we were doing, completely became quiet and about three seconds after that tree, that huge tree had hit the ground, we all heard what I can only describe as a grunt. The best way I can um, describe it to you is if, if you've ever watched any of um, Jane Goodall's documentaries or anything on Nat Geo regarding the silverback gorilla, when, yeah. it, when, it gets, when it gets annoyed and irritated and it makes that... <laughs> you know, kind of grunt. Well, that's what we heard, but it was loud and, and whatever it was, was, it just sounded mad and angry that we were there. And it could break a tree. um, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) As I did not go inspect the tree, but, but apparently an hour later, a couple of the other campers decided to build up enough nerve and go check it out. And they said that that tree was healthy. It was not deadfall. And the other trees around it, Nothing had been broken or had had been rotted out. So um, now here's where the story gets super, super weird. Nothing happened the rest of the night, thankfully. <laughs> no footsteps, no visits, no nothing like that. Now, um, at the back of this particular area is a wide path that, dur- that can be used for driving your vehicle on during hunting season. And, um, one of my favorite things to do when I'm backpacking is I like to get up really early, get a fire going and make myself a hot cup of coffee. So that morning I had gotten up at about, um, I don't know, it was like pretty early, it was like six thirty seven AM. Got my fire going. I got my coffee going and coming into the, into the campsites, coming into the campsites, um, from that road was this SUV, a white, completely blacked out SUV. Okay. And I was thinking, Jit. I was like, well, that's a little odd at this hour of the morning, but I, didn't, I really didn't think much of it. And as it passed by me, because my, my little, uh, camping spot was, um, where this SUV was, was coming. Um, I happened to notice 
that they had a huge sticker. I mean, it was bigger than a basketball. They had a huge sticker on the back of their SUV that was the silhouette of, 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 of Patty, as I like to say, you know, the Patterson Gimlin film. Yeah. 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 And so I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, look at that right away. The, the way my brain works, I'm thinking, Hey, here's a couple guys I can strike up, strike up a conversation with about Bigfoot. So I, I casually walk up to the SUV, which probably was not a good idea looking back on it, but I walk up to the SUV and it, as I'm walking to it, it slows down the, and I'm walking to the driver's side now. And the guy cracks his window open just enough so I can see his, um, his head and I can still see into the SUV, but not all the way. And, um, I was, uh, as I'm, as I'm walking closer to it, to the SUV and I'm looking inside because now his window's coming down, there's two guys in this SUV and Adam, they were completely decked out in full military tact gear. I'm talking, they had two ARs hanging on, the, hanging on a rack in the back of the SUV. <laughs> These guys had the vests on. They had the military boots, uh, knives. I mean, I mean, just, they, these guys look like special forces. <laughs> Sounds like they're going out there to really kill Bigfoot. That's what they want to do. Bag and tag. So, yeah. I, yeah, so <laughs> I'm thinking, what? I'm, so I'm looking at these guys, and I, and I got a little bit nervous, and and. I just I blurted something out of my mouth just to kind of make myself feel a little bit better. I said, "Hey guys," I said, "I saw your sticker." I said, uh, "I said, you know, it's funny. I have the same sticker but smaller on the back of my car, which I do. It was given to me by one by a relative." And um, the other guy looks at me with this very serious tone and very serious look and says, "Um, yeah, that was a practical joke from my from my girlfriend." Then the other guy, the driver, hits the gas and speeds the hell out of there. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell was that? (laughs) (laughs) So after careful analysis through my brain of of what just happened, I'm thinking it's one of two things. Either I I stumbled across a pair of guys looking to bag and tag like you just said a second ago, um, or... This and this is where my mind gets a little conspiratorial. I find it too much of a coincidence that just 12 hours earlier in that same spot, we had a creature break a tree, grunt at us, and then all then just 10 hours later, these two guys show up. I, I just find that incredibly strange and too much of a coincidence. I, I know there's a lot of space in between those two those two um, opinions, yeah. you know, two jokers who are just some, some rogue element on their own. But also I can't help but think that how is it these two guys show up in a spot where there was an occurrence just 10 hours ago with such precision and, and timely location? Well, I mean, I guess it is possible that somebody knows that maybe something is out there. I mean, those guys seemed pretty decked out. But yeah. they, but they could have been. I mean, it's possible that they were just some really serious Bigfoot hunters. And <laughs> yeah. but I mean, I mean, were you with anyone else I, that, like, at the time that you had that encounter? Did you? I mean, would could have anyone have told them about it possibly? Or 
Um, that's a possibility. Uh, maybe one of those other hikers, maybe he made a phone call. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, per- I personally, I don't get a cell signal out there when I'm, when I'm on the eight, I- I've hiked, I've section hiked the AT here in Georgia for three years solid now. And, and yeah. I, I just, I don't get a cell signal. <laughs> so I mean, but it, you know, but, but maybe this guy has, maybe a hiker has better reception or something. And maybe he made a call or I don't know. I could see a hiker getting excited and wanting to share what just happened with somebody. Maybe, maybe somebody intercepted that call. I, I don't know. Hmm. Wow. That is, I, a, I just, that is know, an my, interesting story. Yeah. My, my mind, 90% of my mind says, Hey, here's a couple of guys. They're looking for Bigfoot. This is what they do. And I just happen to run into one or I happen to run into these guys, but there's that small little fraction in my mind that remaining 10% that says, you know, uh, how is it two guys in full military tech gear show up just 10 hours later to the precise spot where there was an occurrence? I, I just, I just can't seem to let that go. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. That's something that that would bother you. Yeah. Well, Dan, yeah. Thank you uh, so much for coming on and sharing these things with us. So we, we really appreciate uh, it. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Uh, you guys have a great show. You keep doing what you're doing. Do you have any kind of web presence for people? or? I'm sorry, say that again? Do you have any kind of web presence for people? That maybe... No, actually, I, I don't. I don't. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I, you know, I suppose if somebody wants to contact me, um, I don't know, maybe they could send you a message through your page and and then you could forward that to me but okay. yeah i don't have a website or anything like that so all right well excellent dan thank you so much and uh, uh stay on the live for us we're going to close this section out and we'll be back to close the show on conspiracy normal people we are back that was a uh, that was a marathon show we, we 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 sort of had another guest there for a few minutes <laughs> some interesting stories about some interesting stories about bigfoot yeah among other yeah. among other things yeah, I'm, I'm sure i'll funny. have i'm sure i'll have somebody say like how can you listen to this guy talk about the atlanta child murders and then talk about bigfoot yeah well, it was that's that's the world of paranormal, supernatural, and true crime conspiranormal uh, <laughs> podcast. People, that's that's kind of how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people out there have have their uh, have their bread in more than one basket. So, and it uh, was good to lighten lighten it up a little bit because the yeah all the implications of that were yeah heavy. yeah that's pretty serious. I you know. When he told me that about it, about Atlanta kind of becoming the hub at that point, and that would be that that could have been the reason the why they covered stuff, a lot yeah. of it up. 
that's like what's going on now here in Nashville. You know, Nashville's big. I mean, Nashville's always been on the map because of country music and all that. But so if something similar, well, we've happened, grown a lot. Yeah, yeah. And if something similar happened, I'm sure business interests would be like, oh, you know, sweep but it under the rug. I think the business interests probably had a whole lot to do with it, but also just you know paranoia of of law and order and stuff. I mean, because the potential for that, yeah, could have been enormous. Who knows? You know. Yeah, especially at that time. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I don't know if it really would have been all across the South. It could right. have been, but definitely in Atlanta in and of itself. If you had any kind of racial strife, and that was very sensitive then. Because remember, I mean, we're only, what, you're only 10 years away from stuff like uh, the riots that happened after Martin Luther King and, you know, the, the was assassinated in the Detroit riots and uh, yeah, yeah. Watts and all that. That was still on the. Yeah. That was still very much on people's minds. That was not. That was not a remote, right aspect at that time. From what I understand, though, the black community in Atlanta always had a lot of suspicion about the official narrative. Yeah, they have, and um, you know, it, it'd be hard. I mean. You know, anyone, even if you didn't know any of the details of of uh, the alleged killer, which I'm, you know, I'm not very educated on this case, but even if you didn't have any of the details, it just seems far-fetched that one man would be able to kill 28 ch- children like that in that amount of time. And, it's, and several adults, too. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean... Which he could have been responsible for most of the adults. That's very... That's very... Um, possible um but you know when i lived down there uh i heard people talk about it and there actually was a sheriff i think he might have been fulton county or it could have been dekalb but he was uh trying to get wayne williams exonerated for most of those murders um i remember wayne williams wasn't even tried for all of them he was only I think he was only sent to jail. That's kind of like what when we when we uh, read the Dave McGowan book and a right. lot of these serial killer cases were just things were just piled on him afterwards and not even tried. You know, right? It's like, oh yeah, this is probably him too, and this and this, and everyone just kind of just sweeping under the rug, yeah, yep. using it to to clear and, out all these cold cases. And uh, this sheriff that was. Uh, trying to exonerate Wayne Williams, he later on was he did something like something criminal. I can't exactly remember, but it, that was actually that was actually going on while I was down there. I remember that, and uh, I remember Cynthia McKinney talking about it yeah. uh, as well. Yeah. Like she's said some things. I mean, she's generally been considered to be like kind of really out there on the fringe. She's actually kind of like supporting Trump now, which kind of blows my it. mind. I believe it. Yeah. Um, but what did you think about the Richie Bla- the Rich uh, Blackett uh, section? Oh, that was that was very interesting. Um, you know, to be honest, my uh, my knowledge of these those uh, wolf cults and the berserkers was pretty influenced by pop culture heavy metal more than anything right 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 read little stuff here and there and i kind of i you know i kind of understood some of the basics but to really flesh it out like that and 
realize how much of an integral part of these cultures and societies these wolf cults were it was it was very interesting and the the martial history of it you know it's it's pretty wild yeah and that's still it's still a lot of that's still used in like popular culture today yeah as well. absolutely it's and we didn't even get into stuff like the hellhounds and the black dogs yeah, yeah. and all the other things having to do with canines which you know the hellhounds are associated with the whole crossroad yeah, yeah. mythos which you can take that back to hecate and all that you know the the the, the blues like robert johnson stuff yeah you know yeah. um but I found I did find something interesting in my own family history that I thought was a little cool. Um, my grandmother's, my father's mother, her maiden name was Love, and I always thought that just meant love, you know. You're right. That 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 that's where that came from. No, it, it doesn't. Um, this is from so, uh, somebody that did genealogy back uh, the people that I'm related to. He said, the name love originated from the word for wolf, which was lupsus in Latin, loofs in French, and became luf or luv in old Scottish dialects. Mm. In the Middle Ages, the wolf was held in mystical awe, and the name lupus was a name occasionally given to a warrior to honor his brave deeds. It appears occasionally throughout early history. It was used as a surname in Normandy in the 11th century, and several of that name accompanied William the Conqueror when he invaded England from Normandy in 1066, including a nephew of William's who was rewarded with an English earldom. After that, the name appeared occasionally throughout England and then Scotland. There is a common thread that seems to, t- to tie all together. The coat of arms, most of those bearing the name Lupus, Luf, Love, or some similar variation, have had a coat of arms bearing three wolves' heads, which lead one to suspect a common origin for all. Hey. Yeah. And they were Scotch-Irish. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I thought that was very interesting. Is How do you get love from wolf? I don't even, I don't even know. But, uh yeah uh we definitely will have rich back on when he finishes his book and he gets it out the book and the blog is really cool too yeah yeah to check out basically where he's compiling all this different information and and that is called i believe it's called of wolf and man yes so really have to be careful how i pronounce that word because you know my good friend heather she likes to laugh when i say woof so uh i'm sure she will be listening in about probably two months she's still really behind get caught up heather (laughs) (laughs) so that is basically it guys um next week we've got brian gadawa coming back to talk about his new book the last part of the uh series that he has done about the preterist view of uh of the book of revelation which is uh we've talked about that with him before and i've got a special guest coming on in the first part someone that inspired me to to do a pod to to do a podcast uh a long time ago so i'm really excited about that cool so uh you said yeah i'm you want me to tell everybody about patreon and all that it's it's on you okay it's on me man all right all right well it's our pledge-a-thon usually we have rob uh to, to do this but uh I will say, guys, if uh, if you want to send us some money, 
support the show, go to www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And you can uh, become a supporter of the show there. Of course, that uh, re-ups every month. That is kind of like your pledge. All right, if you don't want to have that reoccurring, then go to our website and leave us a one-time donation at www.conspiranormal.com. And there is a link there for, for donations. Um, I want to try to keep donations at Patreon, try to keep that rolling, uh, because if we don't, we're going to have to start advertising mattresses and razors and um, sex toys. So who knows? Uh, that might be a little exciting. If you have you, some you paranormal, paranormal sex toys, sex uh, toys. something with like uh, JFK's face on it, <laughs> Lee Har- like the Lee Harvey Oswald <laughs> being shot by Jack Ruby. Oh, wait, what about the magic bullet? The magic. Oh, <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I think on that note, uh, I think the show is done. So, uh, Sergio, thank you for being here and helping hey, me no out, problem. like getting Holding down to Studio B. Studio B. Uh, we will. I think we should be back in Studio A next week. Rob, uh, hopefully, will be back. Hopefully, he's not been eaten by dogmen. So, we'll uh, Rob's dogmen report. <laughs> yeah, we, we we need to have one. So join. Well, even if he has to just make it up, we'll get a we'll get a dog band report out of him. All right. So join us next time, guys, on Conspiranormal. Woof. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.